Welcome to Chapter 65 of the Kinsman Die Podcast, home of fantasy fiction based on Norse mythology that's written and read by me, Matt Bishop. In this podcast, I read my first novel, Kinsman Die, one chapter at a time. And with each episode, when it makes sense, I provide some commentary about the source materials I've referenced in the text. This week, we're back with Vidar. If you recall, Vidar Odinson had pursued several Jotun warriors through the mines beneath the mountains north of Halls. That's the town that the Jotun destroyed in the opening scenes of this book. Those few Jotun were the last of those warbands. Vidar never caught up with them, but he did find the magic doorway through which they came. Directly from Utgard, or so Vidar has theorized. Let's rejoin him now. Chapter 65, Vidar. Vidar stepped up on a bit of crumbling stone and balanced himself with one arm against the tunnel wall. Which lamp light danced across the faces of his warband. Most were young men and women, but plenty of weathered faces peppered the neat ranks. He met their eyes, smiled faintly to some, and nodded to others. He tried to project that same confidence his father exuded. Garillon did too, actually. They seemed to do it naturally, whereas he had to force it. He hoped it was something he could learn. If not, he'd never be able to do it. He was certain, though, that his warband needed a clear reason to step through that doorway. Their misgivings were like bad fruit in a hot shed. We have discovered what I believe to be a doorway from this mine to icy Utgard. I'll be honest. I don't know how it works. Yet. Nor do I know what awaits us on the other side of the doorway. Yet. But I do know this. He pointed down the mine shaft that led to the doorway. Save for the slight shifting of feet and bodies, the warband remained silent. The Jotun warband that destroyed Halls marched through that doorway. They'd have done even worse had we not stopped them. So we will step through with three goals in mind. He held up one fist and extended his thumb. Backtrack the Jotun warband to wherever they came from, report on their strength, and, if possible, their intentions. Was this just a random attack? Or are they planning more? One finger joined his thumb. As I said, I believe that's Utgard on the other side, but I need to be certain. And for that, all I need is one good look at the night sky. Another finger joined its brothers. Investigate the doorway. I need to figure out how it works. That'll take time, but I've no intention of staying longer than necessary. Once we've accomplished the first two goals, we will fall back to the comparative security of this side of the doorway. He fell silent, surveying the faces. Still mostly calm, a wind-kissed lake. Rumors being what they were, they'd already known they were going through. But he needed to give them the reasons why it was important they risked themselves. Had he said enough to air out that hot shed? The doorway works both ways, as I discovered when I stepped through and then came back, he said trying to make his smile feel genuine. So don't worry about that part of it. He spied a few smiles here and there, maybe some crinkling at the corners of eyes. And be assured, we won't be there for too long. With rationing, we have enough food for more than two weeks, and we still need to get back to the surface here in Asgard. So we've planned for that. He surveyed the dirty, tired warriors staring back at him. 
He felt he'd said enough. Frank, clear assessment of what they had to do and what obstacles they faced. Talking too much would make him look weak, indecisive. Best to shut his mouth and expect they'd follow his orders. Guller Garillon. Yes, Jarl. The four messengers already left for the surface? Yes, Jarl, right after breakfast. Good. Please have everyone wear all their clothes. Everything they can and still move, that is. Whatever's left, bring them with. Once they're ready, meet me at the doorway. Yes, Jarl. Vidar stepped down from the scrap of rocks and walked past the loose stone wall they'd erected at the entrance to the mine shaft. It would offer some protection if it came to defending the mine against a Jotun warband pouring through the doorway. He turned into the smooth corridor and stopped a few paces before the doorway itself, snow swirling behind it. He threw his mind's eye inward and sank until he seemed to float right before his fulgia. She still slept, head on her paws, tufted ears flat against the bony ridges of her skull. The golden knots his father had tied hung before his mind's eye like tiny suns. He undid the first one, whispering the rune word his father had taught him. Then the second. When he untied the third knot, her eyes opened, and she stared at him. Feline eyes, flat and intensely green. I expect I'll need your strength soon, he thought at her. She yawned, fangs bright white. He whispered the rune word his father had taught him, and the bindings around her front legs and neck flared blue, just as his did. Her glare darkened like treetops before a storm. I won't make the same mistake again, he thought. You will obey me. Her lips drew back, clearly a smile, and bared that same forest of gleaming teeth she'd shifted his own into and then used to tear the life from two hundred Jotun throats. The wind's screech doubled in Vidar's ears and tore his hood away. It tugged next at the wool cap he tied around his head, failed to rip it off, then blew snow into his eyes and howled its frustration. He tugged his hood back on with a gloved hand, wiped his eyes, and held the hood low, trying to keep the snow out. In his other hand, he held a spear, he probed ahead with it through snow nearly waist-deep. The spear banged against what he hoped was solid ground, and he trudged forward another step. With the weight of the rock above him and the wind clawing at him, he was bent nearly double. Perhaps a storm had blown in since the previous night. His spear thumped against hard ground, so he took another step forward. And another. The rope tied around his waist went taut, and he looked back toward the doorway. Two figures stood there, Mikkel and Smar, unless others had taken their places, made indistinct by the swirling snow and what was probably the doorway's own way of distorting sight. He tugged the taut rope twice to let them know he was fine. The rope drooped as they gave him slack. Then he turned back to his trudge. Nine steps later, the wind seeded the contest. Vidar stumbled forward, straightening as he realized just how bent over he'd been and he realized, too, that the rock no longer hung over him like a witch's curse. He tugged the line again, asking for more slack, and then trudged forward a few more paces. Out here in the open, the wind was still strong, but weaker, outside the tunnel's confines. The snowfall, too, was steady, but not blinding anymore. 
Everywhere he looked, the sky was a heavy gray wool, and while there was enough light to see by, he couldn't tell if it was night or day. Behind him, a snow and ice-covered cliff rose like a building wave. It stretched into the dim light on either side of the tunnel from which he'd emerged. He scanned the snow-filled sky again, hoping for some sign of a break in the clouds, but there was nothing. They would either have to wait out the storm or trek farther afield, or both. From what he'd experienced in Utgard, these storms could last weeks. Maybe they could find other landmarks that would let him say for certain they were in Utgard, and not some equally snowy region of Asgard's far north, or somewhere else entirely. He took up the slack in his line and gave the three sharp tugs that signaled the warband to follow him through. Then he lurched into motion again, probing with his spear, stepping, probing, then stepping again. He angled back toward the dubious protection of the high cliff. All of the ground was probably safe, but it would take time for the warband to come through, and while they did, moving helped him stay warm. A bit of stale bread in one gloved hand, Vidar sat on a snow-covered rock and stared up at Arvandil's toe shining blue-bright in the night sky. He'd know that star anywhere. In Gladsheim, it hung low on the horizon. In Utgard, though, it rose somewhat higher, dominating the northern sky with its clear blue shimmer. By his best guess, it had taken most of evening for him and the warband to find their way out of the deep chasm where the doorway to Asgard was. The way up had proved relatively easy once the snowstorm had blown through, and they found a ramp leading up to the rocky tumble where they now huddled, warming themselves by their witch stoves. Gerlon had cautioned against even the use of the witch stoves, for fear that their slight smell would betray their presence. Vidar had agreed it was a risk, but had allowed their use for warmth, not for cooking. They had set aside a week of supplies for this portion of the journey, but were only planning for a total of four nights exploring the region near the doorway. That should leave enough to spare should something unexpected happen. Vidar stood, stretched, and turned in place, staring up at the gradual fading of the green-blue filaments undulating like eels in the depths. No clouds in sight. A rare thing in Utgard. Garolin stood up beside him. Shall I get the warband ready, Jarl? Yes, Kjolar. You still agree that two groups able to fight independently is best? I think so, Jarl. Garolin nodded. Gives a bit more maneuverability. Wouldn't want them separated too much, though. Never more than a few spear lengths, Kjolar. Head west first? Vidar nodded. They had no idea where the Jotun were, so any direction would work. Even the faint trail they'd been following since entering the mines had vanished once they'd stepped through the doorway. Garillon had advised heading west so the rising sun wouldn't be in their eyes. As the day progressed, they were shorter in Utgard during the winter than in Asgard. They would swing north and then head back east. Garillon had also advised staying within a night's march at most of the only way they knew back, the doorway, particularly since the rugged terrain, apparently endless snow fields and lack of trees suggested they were nowhere near Jotunheim itself. They were most likely in the wilds of Utgard, which only Thor had ever seen, and from high above, no less, or Heimdall, back when he'd stood watch. Even if the Jotun only marched those two warbands through here, 
There should be a fort or settlement or something nearby. We could learn a lot if we find it. I don't disagree, Jarl, Garlon said. But that's exactly what worries me. If there are more warbands up here, even not at full strength, we'd be hard-pressed to defeat them. And if they're preparing to attack Asgard again, they may have snow bears to loose on us. Those beasts will tear right through us. Vidar frowned, chewing the last bit of his bread while he thought. Above, the undulating bands of green and yellow light had begun fading to a sea green. Sol's fingers had just gripped the eastern mountain's teeth. If I may, Jarl, I know our situation seems favorable now, but the Jotun probably know we're here. We never did catch those we pursued through the mines. If we're careful and quick, then maybe we can gather some useful information before they can oppose us. We can probably defend the mine, for a time at least, but I've seen far better positions turn to shit faster than I would have believed possible. I know you have, too. Deep inside Vidar's mind, his Fulgia flicked her tails and bared her teeth. Indeed he had. Well, folks, that was chapter 65 of Kinsman Die. I hope you enjoyed it. Not much going on here myth-wise, except the reference to Arvandil's toe. This refers to a story told by Snorri in his Skald Skappermal, which is part of the Prosetta. In one of the stories in the Skald Skappermal, Thor had defeated the giant Hrungir, and during that fight, a piece of a honing stone, which is used to restore an edge to a bladed weapon, had lodged in Thor's forehead. On Thor's journey home, he stopped at a Jotun witchwoman's house. Her name was Groa. She was married to Arvandil the Valiant. Thor wished to repay Groa for trying to heal him, so he told her that he'd carried Arvandil out of Jotunheim and waded through the icy Elevegar, which are rivers. Arvandil's toe had frozen solid, so Thor broke the man's toe off and threw it up into the sky where it became a star. Thor also said it wouldn't be long before Arvandil returned home to Groa. She was so happy that she forgot her spells and did not end up removing the piece of the honing stone from Thor's head. And if none of that makes much sense, then you're not alone. It's possible that this short tale, fragmented as it is, is part of the larger story of Thor fighting Hrungir and, while so doing, also liberating Arvandil. Nobody knows what actual star is being referred to. It could be Sirius, Rigel, or maybe even the planet Venus. Or maybe none of those. In Old English, Arvandil was known as Iarandil. And for you Tolkien fans, that's where the name of the half-elf Iarandil the Mariner came from. Next week, we're back with Fathrudnir. Until then, if you have the time and inclination, please rate or review the podcast. That helps boost the show's visibility, as does sharing it. As always, I'm going to read from both the Bellows and Larrington translations of the Havamal. This stanza, 65, is a fragment. The translations I've looked at agree that the first half, the first two verses, is lost, so what I read now is likely only the last two lines. Bellows, verse 65. Oft for the words that to others one speaks, he will get but an evil gift. Larrington, verse 65. For those words which one man says to another, often he gets paid back. 
Thanks for listening.